BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman. Today's episode is brought to you by Healthy Nest. Go to www.healthynesting.com for the most amazing baby brand of diapers and wipes and products for cleaning that are healthy for the environment and for your babies. And today's guest is Professor Sian Bailak, who's the president of Barnard College, a cognitive scientist and author. Today, we're talking about a few really relevant things and great concrete tools to come home with. In this conversation, we're going over the idea that we can practice and our kids can get really good at something and be ready and then choke in the moment of pressure. And it happens with us too. And that can be in small ways or in big ways. And how we can help our kids learn not only about effort, but about making the right effort and getting it right in terms of how we go about practicing and then coming out of failures or those moments when we choke and what we can do so that it's not too scary to get back on the horse. And we're also using math because Sian uh, is a math researcher as well to talk about a little bit about homeschooling and helping your kids with math and the best way to go about talking to your kids about math when they have homework that's really difficult so that they can motivate and thrive in a subject that is fraught. And lastly, we're going to talk a little bit about the self-compassion that you need to thrive under pressure. And that's an important thing to remember for all of us in a difficult time. I'm super excited for this episode. And if you love it as much as I do, please subscribe, rate, and write a little review and talk about what you enjoyed. Yeah, I think it's really important to define choking because um, we all have performance ups and downs. And that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is worse performance than expected, particularly because you're worried about what others will think of you, what the outcome is. And so it really is when you've practiced and then you just can't put your best foot forward, when you all eyes are on you and instead of thinking about what you're supposed to do, you're thinking about everyone watching you. And when that happens, we oftentimes get in our own way in our ability to perform our best. And this can certainly happen in big time situations. You're giving a big talk to 500 people or an athletic event. But it also happens all the time, every day. We have lots of little chokes. So for me, for example, I'm a really good parallel parker when no one's watching. <laughs> but when I have friends in the car, I just can't do it. 
or it could even be something simple as raising your hand in a meeting and not being able to get out what you're trying to say. This very worry about people judging you can cause us to perform um, less than often. So this is just as a side note, because I really want to get into what to do to prepare for those moments or prevent those moments and how to repair after. But I'm curious, since they always say research is me-search, if this <laughs> came from some kind of, because you're the president of Barnard College, you surely have to perform all the time. Is there an experience that you had that got you to ask this question about how human brains work? Yeah. I mean, I certainly have always been interested in my own performance. And for me, um, I think I'm an epic choker. I've learned to get better at it, but um, whether it was sitting for a test, like I always did better on practice tests than I did during the real tests. And I was um, an athlete growing up. I played part of, as part of the Olympic development program in soccer. I was a goalkeeper and I had the worst game of my life in front of the coach. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always wondered, and I always wondered in myself why I wasn't able to when I really wanted to perform at my best, like how I got in the way of myself. Mm-hmm. And so um, that really led me to, to studying human performance. What can we do to help ourselves perform better? Wow. And so what can we do to help ourselves perform better? Well, there's lots of things, it turns out. So what if you take anything away from my work or the work of my colleagues in this area, the main take home is that we're not born chokers or thrivers. And Mm. this is true for us. It's true for our kids. And we can, just like we develop a skill, like you learn how to dribble a soccer ball or you learn how to play the violin or you learn math, we can learn how to perform better when we're under stress. And there's lots of ways to do this. In my work, we really developed a toolbox of techniques. So there's not like one size fits all. But Mm -hmm. one really important one is to practice under the kinds of conditions you're going to perform. And so um, I I think about this a lot for myself. If I'm going to give a talk in front of a ton of people and I'm nervous, I mean, I do it a lot now. So I always am kind of practicing. But if I'm nervous about something, sometimes I'll practice in front of the mirror. Because mirrors make us self-conscious, and when all eyes are on us, we get used to it. If you're thinking, we often think about our, our kids and them feeling pressure in an important game, for example. You know, the one thing I talk to parents a lot about is that the first time they come to watch their child play shouldn't be in the important match. Right? That's a great so you, tip. So if you're going to go, if, if your child is playing tennis and they're playing up, you need to go to a practice first. Get them used to having you there because... You don't want their nervousness to be compounded by the fact that now this person is watching them, that they care about and they want it. Mm-hmm. That's so true because we usually just go to games, but practices are a great way to get them used to it. Okay. And I mean, when there are games again. Yeah. <laughs> so what- One what, can only hope. Right. And what other kinds of tools other than practicing- can we share with our kids? Because that's actually a really good point. Of course, this is for our own behavior and modeling for our kids and ourselves, but also how can we raise our kids to exercise this muscle? Yeah, there's lots of little things that we can do. So um, when they're, I would say that like 10, 15 minutes before a big presentation or a game or a test, the thing you want to do is close your book and not focus on what's happening. Distract yourself a little bit. Because the idea is that we worry. We worry about the situation, its consequences, what's going to happen. 
And those worries derail our ability to focus on what's important. And so I always talk about like singing a song. If you have like a pregame routine, doing some breathing, anything, even, you know, for me, when I, before I go into a big meeting with my board, say, or a big presentation to company executives, I read Us Magazine, like anything to mm-hmm. get our mind. I don't read the New York Times or anything heavy, mm-hmm. but something just to distract me from what's about to happen. Um, it's just a way to calm down. So that's, that's another good tip. That's interesting because a lot of people don't want a distraction because they think really hyper-focusing will get them through it. But you're saying that's not actually what and, we know. You know, there's a time and place to focus, but right before it's a great time to take the pressure off. Right. And so, and research has shown that that can be really beneficial. Um, another technique and, and a tip that I think is so important, and we've shown this works for kids and adults alike, is to remember that you can interpret how your body's reacting. Like, you know, oftentimes you have sweaty palms and a beating heart and you think, oh crap, I'm going to fail, right? Yeah. But we've actually shown through research that um, ha- if you interpret those physiological signs differently, you're actually, you'll do better. So if you, for example, we've done research where we've had high school students taking a really important exam, an exam that's going to sort of propel them to the next stage in in their science class. And if we tell these students beforehand, hey, you know, you probably have sweaty palms and a beating heart. This is a really big test. Good luck. Versus we say, you know, this sweaty palms and beating heart are really important for you. Your heart is beating and and, uh, shunting blood to your brain so you can think. Um, and if it wasn't like this, you wouldn't be reared up and ready to go. So if we have them reinterpret these responses versus mm-hmm. just sort of say these responses are kind of indicating stress, um, they do better on the test. How we think matters. It's so good. So how do we break this down? Because it's true. And, and often psychologists talk about this. All stress isn't bad. We need some stress for performance. But how do we break that down with kids? Because there's that other conversation that you have where you, again, can focus on how your nervous system is responding to help you understand why something is happening and help take you out of the panic. But in this case, it's also pulling out the positive, like what is it about your body having that response in the short term that's actually propelling you forward? You know, thinking about your body as giving you signals is, is important, right? Your body, and it's good to listen to those signals. This is true for kids or adults. I think the one best piece of advice I got from a mentor when, I, when it was announced I was going to be the president of Barnard, he, he said to me, he said, you know, something that someone always said to me has been really important. If you're getting that inkling in your gut that something's not right, listen to it. Mm. And I thought that was, you know, that, that, and, and I, I've listened, but I think you think about your body as a signal, right? And that signal is not always bad. And that signal could be telling you that you're ready to go. And if you had no signals, well, you'd be dead, right? I mean, you need some stress to get out of bed in the morning. right? And so reminding students or kids, reminding your kids that they've prepared, they're ready to go. They've been amping up to this big moment. It would be odd if they weren't hyped up. Yes. Um, And just sort of, reinterpreting that, right? I think we often think that that signal just means one thing, but it doesn't. And remember, when someone has a surprise party and you're excited, it's the same physiological response as when you're freaked out. Right. You get to interpret how you feel about it. 
So the brain and how you think is a very powerful thing. It's very powerful. Now, if you do choke under pressure or, you know, and this can be, as you said, any range of things. If your child chokes, how do you help them think about what just happened so that they are motivated to try again and not undermining themselves and giving up? Yeah, I think this is um, a really important point, right? So we can prepare, we can do all the things that we've talked about. You can work with your kid on the fact that maybe this isn't as big of a deal as they think it is, and then they perform poorly. And how do you sort of clean it up and move to the next step? I think, you know, this goes way beyond the initial or the specific moment. What Mm -hmm. you, what parents should always be communicating to their kid is what success means right? Even before you fail. So success does not mean in sports or in music or in a test or anything that you're innately predisposed to do this. You're not just brilliant. You're not just athletic. It means that you've worked the right way, Mm -hmm. right? And what that does is if you reinforce that during success, when they have a failure, it's not that they don't have it or they're just a a choker. They just didn't work the right way. Or you need more skills to adapt to get to where they need to be. I love that you said work the right way because we tend to say work hard and you can work hard and still have a disappointing outcome. But work yes. the right way is so specific. And it really matters, right? And you know, it, that it's not synonymous with effort, right? I mean, if you, you know, my daughter, I'm, I'm trying, my, I have a nine-year-old and I'm trying to get her to do like a, a math workbook over the summer because <laughs> I do a lot of work studying the importance of of gaining math skills. And I've been letting her go through the book and choose the pages she wants to do. Well, she's choosing, you know, the pages where she's just practicing what she knows. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I mean, that's fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not trying to push her so much over the summer, but if the goal is to expand what she knows, it's, she's not working the right way. You know, she can do it really fast. She likes to time herself, you know, and that's fine because this is, my goal is just to keep her sort of thinking over the summer. Right. But, you know, it's not, working the right way, the kind of practice that you do, pushing yourself, sometimes even being a little uncomfortable when you're practicing can be important. So if a kid doesn't like to be uncomfortable, how do you stretch that? I think, you know, it's, it's baby steps, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's also, and this is something I'm still working on with my daughter, like just because you can do the page really fast, that doesn't mean you're great at math. It means you're, you've figured out how to do this application. Mm -hmm. And so like, do another page and only get one problem and be okay with that if you got one problem, right? And mm-hmm. so, and it's not about not having it. It's about that you know how to do one thing and now you have to work on the next thing. So, I mean, try and make it a game. So, I mean, I'm doing, this is me search for me too. As we go through, I'm right. always trying to apply my techniques, but I said, okay, you know, you can do this whole, these whole pages in, in five minutes. Let's see, let's get a baseline for how you do this one problem and we're going to measure it against that. She, she's like her mother. She likes competition. She likes this sort of stuff. Uh-huh. So you, I'm trying to make it fun and, and meld it around what she's interested in. And I think, you know, that's, you have to do that as parents and it, it could be baby steps, right? But the idea is that if you want to push what you're doing, it's not just about practice or just effort. It's about practicing in a way that's sort of extending what you know and know how to do. Yes. So when babies are little, you might start with focusing on the practice and the effort and not the outcome. But shortly after, you want to start getting into practicing the right way and thinking about what your goals are and 
I really think that's such a fine distinction. Or just practicing in a way that pushes you a bit. I mean, Mm -hmm. when we do this from the very smallest stage of kids, right? I mean, if you remember, I mean, you're a, you're a doctor, so you know this, but, um, you know, remember tummy time, like, right. Hated at first. Right. And so you kind of build up and, you know, it's about pushing, you know, it's about pushing the kids in a way that allows them to expand their repertoire. And it doesn't have to be all at once. And it, but it allows them to get used to the fact that it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's okay to fail. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's okay to not know how to do something. And I think we, as parents, oftentimes, especially as we've been in COVID times and with homeschooling, and I've talked a lot about this with, with around math, like we just want to show them how to do it. And it's okay for them to sit there for to struggle for 15 minutes and not know how to do it and try and figure it out. And there's, a lot of psychological and educational research that shows that when parents get involved too quickly, their kids don't learn as mm-hmm. Sing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, my daughter's school, the math, uh, the head of the math department at the beginning of the school year, pretty much every year says, please don't try to get your kids ahead in math and mess with them. Because what we're working on here is different than what you probably worked on and learned. And that's not our goal. And it was hard for a lot of parents to hear that and sit on their hands. It's not hard for me because I didn't want to be playing with math activities and pushing math. So I have other things that are challenging for me to bite my tongue or sit on my hands for. But I did notice that that was a real struggle was not getting involved right away or not when when your child asks you about a problem, going right to figuring it out for or with them and not not getting comfortable with their discomfort and maybe being afraid that they'll feel insecure intellectually and you don't want them to go through that experience. And then the, the less opportunity you have to practice struggling in those moments just for a little bit, even with tummy time, the harder it is to know that that's a very normal part of growth. And it's a normal part of life. And this is certainly true um, for math, I mean, we we learn math differently than our kids do. do. So different. And when we get in there and try, we confuse them. And so then, you know, I think this is something I talk a lot about. I think there is an onus on the teacher and and the school, when possible, to be teaching the parents too. Um, yeah. And to have them understand how they're teaching math, how it's different, and how to get involved when needed. Um, that's going to be very things, important right now. Because exactly. that's, that, that's very uh, intimidating as a sidebar to have to be, if you're at home for school, for those who are going to be, when there is a math struggle, what do you do? And, yeah. and how, how can actually, as we're going to circle back, but I am curious what you could tell parents about that. Well, I think one thing to do is to learn along, have the teacher as much as possible, sort of if it's in PowerPoint slides, like give the lesson in the PowerPoint slides that the parents can, can watch too, maybe not at the exact same time, but after, because you want to see how the teacher is orienting the child to the problem. You don't want to just see the problem because mm-hmm. if you're on, if the teacher's doing it a completely different way then when you step in to help your child, you don't know where the teacher is coming from. So that mm-hmm. background knowledge is going to be really important. So something that our, I thought was great about my daughter's third grade class is that They'd have the lesson on Zoom in the spring, and then the, all the homework would be on a PowerPoint slide. But there would the lesson, like the steps of the lesson, would be on that slide too. 
So I wouldn't watch the lesson, but if she had a question, I could go back and look at how the teacher had introduced it and use that as a way to try and help her. But I will say that we know that a lot of parents are anxious about math. Uh, Most adults Mm. have some anxiety about math. And one of the things that we also know is that when anxious parents get in and try and help their kids with the homework um, in ways that limit kids' struggle, the kids do worse in math. And so it's going to be really Mm. important for parents who are doing this in the fall to try and get a handle on how the teacher is teaching. Um, And I know the teachers are overwhelmed, but um, the more the teacher can help give an out, like a sort of overview of the lesson for the parent, the better off it'll be. And also, I mean, the second tip I would say is that don't normalize that anxiety. Like a lot of parents will say things like, oh, it's okay if this is hard, you know, I'm not good at math either. And Mm. remember like this sends the signal that either you're a math person or you're not. And I can tell you there's absolutely no research to suggest that people are born math, people are not. It's how you learn it. And so, you know, normalizing that, oh, I'm not good at math. And women tend to do this often, right? Go ask your dad. It it sends a really dangerous message, especially Mm -hmm. to them. So, yeah. So any kid who hears that will will then tell themselves potentially if it's a struggle to do math, I guess I'm just not a math person. And then we start this cycle again of not feeling comfortable pushing yourself or trying to do math in the kind of way that gives you that growth mindset. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is true overall. And it's something we talked about before. I mean, Barnard College, um, you know, we're associated with Columbia. We're focused on women. We're one of the most selective schools in the country. We have the most amazing women coming to Barnard. Mm. And I see this all the time. They've been successful their whole life and they're often afraid to take risks. And, you know, it starts early from how parents are normalizing failure and pushing, feeling uncomfortable. And um, we know on average, women tend to be less likely to take risks in general. And we know that taking some of these risks are really rewarded. So just as an example, women are much less likely to apply to a job if they don't have all the credentials, whereas men will apply if they have half the credentials. (laughs) Women will underestimate their success in a particular class based on the same test score as men, right? And so we have, and this is true for both boys and girls, we have to condition our kids early to feel uncomfortable and take some of those steps that where they will fail because we're setting them up for, we have to set them up for a life of being able to stretch. Can we expand on that a little bit? So just with really concrete examples of the kinds of things you can say to younger kids, school-age kids, and teenagers to help stretch that muscle. Yeah. I mean, one thing I would say is oftentimes kids will compare themselves to someone else who knows how to do it or in a different reading group, you know, like as much as Reading groups are now animal names instead of, you know, one, two, three. I mean, they're smart. Kids are really smart. I mean, we all know that. Um, And so, like, I think, you know, one of the things, especially for kids who are very socially aware of what's happening around their peers, and then they don't want to look like they don't know something, and so they shy to the more safe stuff, I think really helping them to dissect what's happening is important. So, you know, if my daughter says, well, you know, Jenny is such a good reader. Like she just is like, so ahead. She's so good at reading. And I say things to her, like, I'm sure Jenny's been practicing a lot more. Like how many books have you been reading over the summer? Like if Mm -hmm. you can get, you can be where she is, you just have to put in the effort. Um, And so it sort of takes the step back from, oh, they just know how to do it to explaining how they got there. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important. And then it's, you know, I spend a lot of time with my daughter and, and also with everyone pointing out failures, right? Like, so we try and have dinner as a family a couple of times a week, um, you know, our aspiration. And I often talk about how I really screwed something up. Like I'm trying to normalize that that's part of it. And then how do you fix it? Mm-hmm. And do you normalize it by saying what your experience was that day? Like you're not just talking about, you know, it's like I failed as a, as a celebration of the ability to fail or is it here's what happens as part of the natural process of living a stretched life? Yes. I mean, I talk, I think specifics are always better. So I talk about the specifics, what went wrong, you know, what I'm trying to do, what the problem is. I mean, I think I don't always have the answer. Like, I think I'm, I model the struggle. <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. I was just remembering that I said to my daughters, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I was like, I, I just want to make sure you know that I'm not perfect. <laughs> <laughs> like, I work really hard and, you know, I'm going to always make mistakes. And they were like, yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I think, that's funny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and my daughter does the same thing. I mean, it's, it's funny when you have like all this knowledge at your disposal and then in terms of how you use in it. Real life. I, yeah. I mean, I even put a lot of pressure on myself because I should be doing this better. Right. Right. Uh, yeah. But my daughter says to me all the time, like I give her this effort talk all the time. Like she's like enough of the effort. talk. Of course. I get it. I get it. You know, and so, um, but I hope she's listening somewhere. I think it's both of those things, right? Like I, I think our kids, my kids make so much fun of me for all these things or mid something. They're like, are we going to talk about our wizard brain again? But, <laughs> but then I, I, you know, I think the over time, those whispers and those little moments sink in and they just need to roll their eyes sometimes and say, I get yeah. it. Yeah, we, I mean, there's a joke because wherever we go, I'm always pointing out like a woman doing a job that maybe stereotypically is a man. So like for a man, <laughs> like, so whenever we have a female pilot or anywhere and they're like, yes, I see there's a woman, there's a woman. Like, <laughs> people always ask me, you know, is there one way to do education? So Barnard is a school focused on women. And, you know, do I think that only girls schools or only all female education is the way to go? And you know, my answer is no, there's not one right way to do education. Mm -hmm. And it's not like there's some magic sauce that happens in a college like Barnard, but there are actual mechanisms. Things that happen uh, tend to happen more so in all female environments that we know affect change in how young girls and older women think. So the first one is that we, there's a lot of research showing that when you see people like you in successful leadership roles, you're more likely to think that you can succeed. It's why, one of the reasons why diversity in leadership positions is so important. If choking implies the expectation that you're thriving in a particular skill set and then don't perform in that moment, or I guess let's get into kids who are practiced at one particular thing and really specializing early and what the research is about all of that. Yeah. I mean, I, my point of view is that we tend to have kids specialize way too early. There's actually some really interesting research looking at professional athletes in several sports. I think there's one uh, paper in golf. I talk about these in my book, Choke, and there's certainly one in professional baseball. And it turns out that the best athletes are the ones who don't sort of go to one sport until later, maybe in, in, even into high school. 
And I think we have this tendency as parents, you know, what are our kids going to excel at? What are they going to be known for? You yes. Know? And there's so many benefits of doing multiple things. I mean, you can see this in so many ways. There's a correlation between playing music and doing math because we know that, you know, math, the math area of the brain is duct taped onto the area of the brain that uses our fingers, right? It, it's base 10. Um, and people have suggested, research has suggested that there's something about musical ability and using two hands to play music that could help hone math or vice versa. Um, and there's so many aspects of playing one particular sport and it translating over to something else, whether it's like the speed in soccer to help in tennis or vice versa. I mean, there's just, and there's a benefit from not always succeeding. And so if you are in one sport where you're expected to excel, you stop practicing failing. Mm. Um, and so I'm really a fan of, of multiple activities and not pushing kids into one specialization. Too. And then is there a certain point where a parent should say, okay, now it's bizarre. You're in high school and you haven't found a thing or can people say they just aren't ready to? Yeah. I mean, I think there's always this attempt to sort of label people. This is what I'm going to do. Here's what I want to go to school. Here's what I want to study. And there's so much research, I would say, showing the benefits of having multiple selves. And I think we often forget that. Um, so people are psychologically healthier when they have multiple selves. And by that, I mean, I have a mom self, I have a work self, mm -hmm. I have a friend self. And when you have those different aspects, it's a psychological buffer. So if you screw up in one aspect of your life, you can kind of fall on the other, right? Yes. So I wasn't such a great president today, but look, I'm a super mom, mm -hmm. right? And so it's really important to have those different self aspects. And it's true for kids too. Like if their whole identity is around being a soccer star, and then that turns out that's not where they're going to succeed, you know, you want to train them to be able to pivot. And we're going to have to do that for our entire lives. And I think we're practicing that a lot right now during COVID. Certainly. This is, a, uh, this is an interesting time. I, I think about kids who are now, who did thrive doing sports and games and performances, theater, and, and where that, that part of their school experience and social lives was so important and magnified. And what can they do right now to still feed that part of themselves and pivot when that's just not possible? Yeah. And so that's where I think, you know, you can be creative as parents. Like what is, you know, how are we videoing how many times they can juggle the soccer ball in the backyard or, you know, what, what sorts of things are we doing to, to sort of set up new ideas or new games or new ways to enrich that part of, of their lives? I mean, it doesn't, you know, it could be anything from TikTok videos, which I mean, you know, parents can have uh, more or less excitement for, but I mean, I think, <laughs> You know, as these things go up, if there are people are, and especially young people are looking for outlets. Yeah, we have to be much more understanding and probably a lot more grateful for the social media that a lot of us have loathed before because it is giving them outlets to have motivation to perform something or practice something and get it and show it. Yeah, I mean, my daughter is telling me about some house she's building in Robux. Robux. Right. And which I think I, I despise this game because it's yeah. all she wants to do. But she's like, really, she has a goal. She's achieving. She wants to build this house. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she's excited about it. I think so heartening to know that there's, there's stuff we can do to yeah. help ourselves and our kids 
think differently and perform differently and motivate in a different kind of way or at all. And that it's not just how they came out or temperament. Although I'm yeah, sure that helps the scooch. <laughs> Everything helps, I think. But I think it's it's also important to remember that, you know, it's not, you don't have to spend hundreds of dollars or, you know, tens of, of thousands of hours here. Like how you talk to your kids and some of the little things you do can have really big effects, right? Mm-hmm. So when your kid is worried about the upcoming match or test or performance, you know, try and take their mind off the what ifs, right? The what ifs are the worst, right? Even before it happens, the what if this happens or what if that. And in my research with looking at the brain, we actually show that it's before a big event or performance that our sort of neural alarm signals are going off. Like once you actually do it, everything quiets down. But right before your brain is, the what ifs are just, you know, screaming. It's like we're, yes, screaming, they're going off. Um, so instead of thinking about the what ifs, can your kid think about how much they practiced or a time when they, they didn't think they were going to succeed and they did? Mm-hmm. Anything to change how they focus. And we have the power to do that. We can change what we focus on. So then I have one one more question, I swear. Um, So interestingly, because with anxiety, oftentimes if we absolutely don't acknowledge that we're having those what if moments, then you can get distracted by the distraction of them. But if you take, you know, set a clock for 10 minutes, an alarm for 10 minutes and say, okay, I'm going to go through all the what ifs and then I'm putting them away. And then now I'm going to think about what's, happening now or all the work I've put into it or all the reasons that you were talking about that things can go well, or I'm going to start singing or reading us magazine or whatever, but (laughs) is in, in, in this particular area, uh, of thriving in those moments, does it help at all to even have a moment to accept, acknowledge, and then put away those what ifs or should we put them away? No, I think there's, I think that's really important. Like you can have the what ifs. We don't want to suppress them. Like we don't want to just bury them. I think it's totally fine. But we have to be we have to be careful that we don't stay in the what if stage forever, right? So get them down on paper, write them down, and then reappraise. Well, mm-hmm. you know, I'm really worried about this, but actually, you know, I studied. I'm ready to go. Or, um, you know, I was really worried about this last time, and it turned out I did okay. Like it's it's okay to acknowledge and have those thoughts, but then we we can we have the power to turn them. Wonderful. I had a, a meditation teacher explain anxiety like a friend that you welcome in for coffee but not dinner that's great (laughs) yeah and I mean I'll just say one more thing I mean for parents and kids alike we tend to be really hard on ourselves I always say to Barnard students like you know the things you say privately to yourself you'd never say to a good friend if you're trying to get them ramped up or cheer them on right and we have to be cognizant of the fact that we need to have some self-compassion and yes. so we can't just beat ourselves up. And so pretend like you're talking to yourself like you talk to a friend. There's research that shows even talking to yourself in the, you know, in the third person, say your name. Sion, yes. you can do this. Sion, don't worry about it. It sort of self-distances you. You have a little more compassion. Don't let yourself beat yourself up. Absolutely. I always think like I, I want to use the voice in my head that I want my daughters to use in their head. Exactly. Yeah. And we, but it's hard. I mean, and it's really hard. You have to, it's, you have to practice it, right? Um, and especially for people who want to thrive or want their kids to thrive, you know, we have to give ourselves a break and help our kids give themselves a break. 
Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can look at the show notes to get a link to Sian's research and her book, Choke. And I hope you have a wonderful week.